0: Deuteronomy chapter 5 this morning. Uh, we are still in Deuteronomy 5. Uh, verse 18 is where we will be in just a moment. We have talked through the first six commandments. Now we get to number 7. Deuteronomy chapter 5. When you get there, will, will you stand with me? Just as all the other commandments do, this commandment radiates the glory of God, calling us to emulate Him in our thoughts, our character, our actions. Deuteronomy 5.18, this is the word of God. And if you let it, it will change your life. And you shall not commit adultery. Father, be with us this morning. Inhabit the word as it is preached, as it is heard. Help it to get deep into our hearts. Break apart the rocky soil, the, the hindrances that keep us from knowing and doing your will. Father, work through those that this word may be planted deep within us, that it may bear much fruit for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. This We get to the seventh commandment, a commandment that forbids us from committing adultery. It's been said that for every good thing that God has, hell has a knockoff imitation. For everything that is good and true and beautiful, that is a gift of God, hell has some sort of, of imitation that perverts it, that twists it. And boy, hell has a lot of perversions for marriage. There are a lot of ways to go about perverting marriage, but this commandment focuses specifically on adultery. God could have put any number of things in this top 10 list of ethical charges that he gives us, this, this basis for our ethical life. He could have put anything into his top 10. He could have, for example, forbidden all kinds of things, excessive cruelty toward other people or toward animals. Kind of covers that, but doesn't, doesn't explicitly lay it out. He could have done all kinds of things, but instead he chooses adultery. And I think there's some something about it that is so grotesque in God's mind, something about it that is so wicked to God, that he has to say, all right, this one needs to be spelled out specifically. And I think that points to a couple of aspects of his character. First of all, that God is faithful. God himself is a faithful God. Take a second and let that sink in because we often say things like God is faithful and we kind of gloss over it as though it doesn't really mean that much. Oh, Oh, oh yeah, I know God's faithful. Maybe you're going through a hard time and someone says to you that God is faithful to remember his faithfulness and you say, oh, well, God's faithful. I guess he's going to be with me. But it's more than that, isn't it? Everything God commands us is to shape us in his image. And so when we see God is the faithful God, we recognize that what God's trying to get out of us is faithfulness too. We'll get to that more in a second, but out of the dozens or hundreds of passages that we can look at that show God's faithfulness, I just want to bring your mind to a couple of them. One is in Exodus 34. Moses is up on the mountain and he's talking to God. and He says, God, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my face and live. So here's what God does. He puts Moses in this little corner between some rocks puts his hand over Moses' face so he does not see, God walks by. Exodus 34, verse 6 tells the story. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. When God declares himself, when Moses says, show me your glory, God tells him, I am a faithful God. Now, that's not the only thing he says there. That one verse is pregnant with meaning. There's so many great aspects of God that he points out in that one verse. But one of them is his faithfulness. And it's not just God saying he's faithful. I mean, you know, let's, let's, get, let's get some other witnesses involved. How about David? Psalm 36, verse five. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens your faithfulness to the clouds. Uh, if, you've, if you've heard the third day Psalm, Your Love, O Lord, it comes from this Psalm. Then there's Psalm 89. Psalm 89, God is God's faith, I think it's like eight or ten different times that this one psalm refers to God's faithfulness. But in the in the middle of it, God says, I'm going to be faithful to David. And I'm going to establish His kingdom. But one day, when His sons don't follow Me, when they don't keep My commandments, when when they when they transgress My laws, I'm going to punish them. I, I'm going to uh, uh, punish them with with the rod. I'm going to discipline them because of their iniquity. But then check this out. Skip to verse uh, uh, 33. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. Do you catch what God has said there? He said, even though you deserve punishment, I'm going to give you the punishment you deserve, but I'm not going to stop being faithful. Now, when you write a covenant or you sign a contract, there are certain things that they have to do and certain things you have to do. You sign a contract, you're agreeing to fulfill certain obligations, and they are fulfilling certain obligations. And if they don't fill the obligations that they have to, they have voided the contract. You are under no legal obligation to fulfill your end. Likewise, if you don't fulfill your end of the contract, they are under no obligation to fulfill theirs. Right? With me? God says, I'm not like that. Even when you don't fulfill your end of the bargain, I'm still going to fulfill mine. That's why when God made the covenant with Abraham, God made the covenant with Abraham. Abraham didn't make the covenant with God. Abraham was falling asleep. God put him in a deep sleep. And then he sees the smoke passing between the sides of of that meat, that, that cattle that's been cut in half, that bull that's been cut in half. God passing between them to say, I'm entering in the covenant with you. And you don't even have a role to play, Abraham. You just do the things I say, I'm going to fulfill my end. Abraham doesn't pass between. If he did, he would have been making the covenant. God passes between. We have a covenant God that says, I will do this even if you screw it up, even if you mess it up and you do the wrong things and you break the laws, and you violate the covenant. It doesn't matter because I will keep my end of the covenant. That's how faithful of a God we have. He says, I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my witness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. I'm not even going to change the details of it. Once For all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. God is faithful. And I gotta be honest with you, I'm tempted to end the sermon here because that's enough for us to cue on, isn't it? But God isn't just content just to demonstrate is faithfulness. God wants to bring us into it too. So not only is God a faithful God, God cares about covenant faithfulness. It matters to God. Faithfulness to his covenants is paramount to him. And it matters so much that he wants us to be faithful too. Proverbs twelve twenty two: lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. Why? Because they violate the covenant. We'll talk in a couple of weeks about that command, not to bear false witness against our neighbor. The truth matters to God. And violating that covenant with lying lips, that's something God despises. But look what he goes on to say. But those who act faithfully are his delight. God actually delights in us being faithful. Why? Because our faithfulness points to his faithfulness. Uh, like father, like son, right? You see the son doing something and you say, oh yeah, yeah, just like his daddy. Now, sometimes you say, just like his daddy. (laughs) But when he's doing something right, yeah, his father's that same way too. God delights when we're faithful. He speaks to the prophet Isaiah, open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith, notice those two are connected, faith and righteousness, You don't get them apart from each other. The righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. Then watch this. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. Boy, everlasting rock. That sounds sounds pretty faithful to me, doesn't it, to you? We can trust in God because we know he's faithful. And so we too can be faithful. God invites the faithful into his presence. He establishes them per- firmly. That perfect peace in the everlasting law is the inheritance of the one who's faithful. God is so concerned with covenant faithfulness that he bases his richest blessings on our faithful obedience. Just a minute ago, we, we returned thanks to God, praising him for things that he's done for us. And some of them are things that he does for everybody. He brings he, he he wakes up anybody that's alive, right? And maybe one there's one day coming when he doesn't wake you up. Your time is done. But until then, he's faithful, right? And then and then the rain it falls on the wicked as well as the righteous. Sometimes it falls all at once, like it did Thursday night. Sometimes it falls little by little. Sometimes you get a few drops and it passes over, and you you're waiting for this bad storm, but nothing not much comes. But that's not dependent on whether you're righteous or not. God brings rain or doesn't. And he does it for both the righteous and the wicked. But God's best blessings, the blessings that we yearn for and need the most, those only come when we're doing his perfect will. You want to know God's blessings? Be faithful. There's another aspect of God, one that focuses more on what he does than his character, and that is that God ordains marriage for his glory. Now, this this command focuses on marriage. There's a reason for that. While it's a general call to faithfulness, marital faithfulness matters much to God because it's, it's, a, it's a means for his glory. In fact, uh, the very first command God gives Adam and Eve, not one of the Ten Commandments, even before that. It's not the command that he gave to Abraham to go to another land that I will show you. No, No, the very first command he gives in the Bible is to Adam and Eve, and he tells them, be fruitful and multiply. God makes them in his image. He blesses them, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it and have dominion over all of the animals, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves on the earth. Have dominion over all that. The first thing he tells them, be fruitful and multiply. Marriage provides a strong, stable foundation from which we can fulfill that first commandment to be fruitful and multiply. Outside of marriage, there's no stability. He's here one day and gone the next. She she gets pregnant. He's gone. There's no stability. Outside of marriage, there's no stability. But within marriage, the way that God has intended it, we have a stable, firm foundation upon which we can fulfill the command not only to be fruitful and multiply, not only to fill the earth, but to subdue it, to exercise God's dominion. That happens best within marriages within children reared in homes with a father and a mother who love God and love each other. That's the way he's designed it to be. It provides that means by which we can raise children to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord our Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory forever. It provides that stable place whereby we can be stewards of the creation that God has called us to be. not only that it also demonstrates God's character we have this doctrine called the trinity it is the most difficult doctrine uh, to understand because when you think you've got it no you don't I used to think I had it then I then I then I began to see oh wait a minute no I don't it's a little more complicated than that God the father is not God the son is not God the spirit They are three distinct persons, but yet they all are each other. They might be three distinct persons, but they have one essence, one nature. And so you have these three and one. We had to create the word Trinity out of tri and unity just to have a word to describe it. Three, yet one. We don't have a way of comprehending that, except we do. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave or hold fast, depending on the version you're using, to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You have two unique personalities. My wife is not me. I am not my wife. We are distinct persons. But yet, unified in marriage, we too become one. Kind of like how God is one. It shows the nature of God. And then the way we love one another. That shows how God loves. The Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Spirit and the Spirit loves the Father. The way that I love my wife and she loves me is a testimony to people that God loves them. Because just as we are loving one another, they're seeing God's love in action. And to our kids, how we love our kids, they're seeing God's love in action. And so you have in this marriage, this means not only of fulfilling the first command that God gave us, you also see this means of seeing what God's character looks like in real life. Now we have a shelf that we can put that idea of Trinity on because we've seen good marriage. At least hopefully we've seen good marriage. And if some of you have seen it through your own parents, some of you have seen it through others. My mom and dad were not terrible examples but they weren't the best. But then I've seen others others as well. I remember I was on a mission trip and I saw uh, uh, one pastor and his wife. This was a summer trip. And I watched how they interacted with each other and how they interacted with their kids. And I understood a little bit better what God was like because of them living it out. See, good marriage will do that. It'll glorify God and help you know better. So what do we do? Well... God is faithful. We must be faithful to. We must be faithful first to our spouse. Ultimate covenant loyalty belongs to God. But next to that, the next person in line is your spouse. Luther said it this way. God says, love your neighbor as yourself and your wife as your nearest neighbor. Ladies, your husband's your nearest neighbor. Sometimes you may not like your neighbor. (laughs) I get that. Trust me, she gets that a lot better than I do. But we love our neighbor as ourselves. And they're the closest one. If you look through the entire book of Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, you'll see that faithfulness over and over and over again. I'll let you do that on your own. There are a couple of other passages. Proverbs 5.18 is, is just has a great way of saying it. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Men, rejoice in your wife because she's your wife ladies flip the words around and rejoice in the husband of your youth one of the reasons that God chastises his people is because that the lack of covenant faithfulness in marriage Malachi 2 God begins by by um God begins by chastising the people of Israel because they're following after other gods Immediately after that, he then turns and says, now you offer your offerings, but God doesn't accept them. And you say, why doesn't God accept our offerings? The reason is this, you're not faithful to your wife. Verse 16, Malachi says this, for the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. It's so important. He's got to say that God said it twice. Then he says, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Don't be faithless. To be faithless in marriage is to be faithless to the God who brought husband and wife together and what God has brought together and let not man put asunder." And it's not just outward actions either. We must be faithful to our spouse, including in our hearts. Just as anger is the heart problem that often leads to murder. Lust is the heart problem that often leads to adultery. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He, he, he goes so far as to say in the next verses that if your arm causes you to sin, your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to enter heaven maimed, he said, than to enter hell With all your parts in working order, whatever whatever links you have to go to to avoid committing sin, do it. He's using an extreme example, cutting off body parts, but the point the point's still true. Whatever we have to do, we need to do. We need to make sure that our hearts are faithful and not just our bodies. Now, but you might say, "Well, I'm not married." I think of some of the kids, the kids in here. None of the kids are married. Not some of them, none of them are married. They're not married yet. I think of some of you that your spouse passed away long ago, or maybe not that long ago. Some of you have been divorced, remarried. What about you? Well, if you're married, if you're not married, whether you're married or not, we're still to be faithful to our spouse, aren't we? Now, You haven't been married yet. You might be married one day. Be faithful to that spouse. I've been married, but my my spouse is now gone. They've they've already gone to be with the Lord or whatever has happened. And and that's been in the past. Well, you never know. God might have another one for you this side of heaven. Maybe not. Just be faithful anyway. Divorced? Jesus addresses that in Matthew 5. Whoever divorces, it is said whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus' standard is high because divorce is a breaking of the marriage covenant and it's detrimental to the glory of God. Now, when, when someone is unfaithful, And they continue to be unfaithful and they continue to be unfaithful. When someone is abusive and they are continuing to be abusive and and, and that pattern is not changing, they've already broken the marriage covenant. Maybe maybe you were divorced if you were divorced. Maybe you were divorced before you knew Christ. And now you're just trying to live according to his way. I'm gonna tell you something. God's not so hard that he says, I'm not gonna forgive you because of what you've done before Christ saved you. But I will say this, those exceptions prove the rule. Y'all, several years ago, we stopped caring as much about marriage as we should have. We started saying, well, mm, mm, divorces are, it's not good, but I guess it's okay. I don't wanna be unloving, so I'll, you know. You know, that guy's a nice guy, that woman's a nice woman. I'm, I'm just not gonna, and before long, We don't even know what a man or a woman is because slowly but surely truth is eroding away because we're not shoring it up. We're not standing for what's right. We're losing ground and we shouldn't have been. And it started with us taking marriage too lightly. That's our second thing. We must take the marriage covenant as seriously as the divine covenant. We cannot let marriages go by the wayside, but as long as you love God, that's okay. No, God takes the marriage covenant so seriously that he talks about idolatry in terms of adultery. The way he says you're kidding on me is to say you're like an unfaithful spouse. It's just as serious for God for us to have other gods as it is for us to have other women or other men. We know but that's true, because of how many times he talks about it in this way. Look at the book of Hosea. The first couple chapters of Hosea paint this picture well. God tells the prophet Hosea, go marry a woman. And it's a certain kind of woman, isn't it? It's an adulterous woman. He goes into her, knows her, and they have a baby, a son. Name him Jezreel. God will sow is what that name means because I'm about to judge unfaithful Israel. Then the Bible says that she conceived again. This one, a daughter, name her no mercy because I will not have mercy on my people. Then she conceives again and this time it's a son and he says, name him not my people because this is not my people. I'm not their God. You can watch the progression And you can see the first one, it's definitely Hosea's son. The last one is definitely not. In fact, an alternate meaning of not my people, that name that he gives is not mine. He says, you know, she cheated on you. You knew she was going to. I told you to marry her because she was going to cheat on you. This is what God's people are doing to God. This is what Israel is doing to God when it's chasing after other gods. It's committing spiritual adultery. But then in chapter 3, God does something amazing. He says, go buy her back. And so Hosea doesn't have enough money to buy her back. So he gets half of the money in money, and half of the money he actually takes from his crops. He's apparently a farmer, and that's how he makes his living. And so he takes the crops, enough crops to make up the other half of the money, and he uses that to buy her back. And he says, now you're going to be mine. You're not going to go chasing after other men. You're going to be my wife. God says, I want my people to be mine. Remember when we talked about God being jealous? This is what I'm talking about when I say God is jealous. He's jealous because these folks belong to me. They're my people. So they're not going to be chasing after other gods. Mitchell, sit right. I need you sitting up. Thank you. God takes infidelity seriously. By the way, most every culture of that time did. Even pagan culture saw marital infidelity as a stark, dark stain on society. We used to, not so much as we need to anymore. One other thing I want to note, since marriage done right is designed to glorify God and since he takes it so seriously, we need to make sure our marriage has increased God's glory. One of the things I believe this commandment calls us to do is to look like we ought to look, to make our marriages shine forth God's glory. Ephesians 5, I'm going to let you read that passage on your own. We're not going to read it, but basically Ephesians 5 points this out. It has He's telling the wives, uh, Paul is, to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And then he turns to the husband and he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And if the husband is loving the wife the way that Christ loves the church, and the church is respecting the husband and and, and is submitting to the husband the way that the church submits to Christ, you know what will happen? God will be glorified in our marriages. Because it won't just be two people trying to get by for the sake of the kids. It will be two people who love and honor each other so much that God's glory radiates from their household. That's what God wants us to be. We bring God glory by living out his character and we do it best, those of us who are married, by doing it with our spouses. One more point I want to address. Kind of touched on this earlier, but I want to make sure that I make the point. Maybe you've listened to this this morning, this sermon, and you realize I haven't been faithful. There's places where I have failed in faithfulness. It's a case of one woman. John chapter 8 tells the story of a woman caught in adultery, brought before Jesus. The leaders, religious leaders say to Jesus, you know, Moses tells us in the law that we are to stone such a woman. It's caught in adultery. What do you say? Pick up on verse 6, Carrie. And Then they, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. We don't know what he was writing. Some people have tried to speculate. Maybe he was writing down their sins or maybe the names of uh, of, of their the people that they had had indiscretions with or something like that. Maybe he was writing something else. Maybe he was just kind of drawing, doodling, nothing in particular. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Because starting with the old ones, one by one, they left. Verse 10, then Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. The one who actually was without sin chose not to cast the sin. The one who actually had the right to enforce the law because he was without sin chose to forgive. God forgives repentant adulterers. And it's not just repentant adulterers, it's repentant murderers. It's repentant people who dishonor their parents. It's repentant people who take God's name in vain. It's repentant people who sin. Raise your hand if you're a sinner. Yeah, all of us. Raise, some of us need to raise both hands because we're really good at it, right? No matter how bad you've screwed up in the past, no matter how loose you've been or, or how many times you've cheated or done anything else, no matter how far you have gone away from God, God's still willing to forgive you. We're going to sing a verse of invitation. It might be that today you need to seek God's forgiveness. I know I do. We all do, don't we? God will forgive you if you will repent. Father, help us all to recognize our sins and to not just not like them, not just get disgusted by them, not just uh, get upset that we just keep doing the same things over and over again. God, help us to turn away from them and to turn toward you. Help us to repent. Help us to live for you, to go and sin no more. Do your work in our hearts. You bid us to come. So, Lord, we come. In Christ's name, amen.